Welcome to today's episode of HealthTree Radio for AML, a show that connects patients with acute myeloid leukemia researchers. I'm your host, Katie Braswell. We'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Amgen, for their support of this HealthTree Radio for AML show. Before we get started with today's show, I'd like to mention two upcoming events. Later this week, on October 28th at 2 p.m. Central, we are excited to announce that we will be hosting our very first adult AML chapter event. We will kick this event off with a brief introduction about the Health Tree for AML Foundation, given by the Foundation's President, Jenny Alstrom, which will be followed by a presentation from Dr. Stein, an AML expert from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He will be discussing the importance of personalized medicine for AML and why it is crucial to be treated by an AML expert. He'll be taking your questions during a Q&A session at the end. We encourage you all to join this adult AML chapter, which will be hosting both educational and support group-style meetings regularly. You can join by visiting healthtree.org slash AML slash community slash chapters. Also, on November 15th at 2 p.m. Central, we will be hosting another event within our adult AML chapter. We will have the unique opportunity to hear from Nobel Prize winner and immunotherapy pioneer, Dr. Jim Allison, and his wife, Dr. Sharma. By registering for this event, you will receive free access to Dr. Allison's documentary, which we will encourage you to watch prior to the event. By registering, you will also receive a link where you can submit your questions to Dr. Allison, and he will answer them live during the Q&A session on November 15th. You can register for both of these virtual events by visiting healthtree.org slash AML slash community slash events. The registration page for the Jim Allison event will be hosted, posted later this week. By signing up for our newsletter, which is on the homepage of our website, healthtree.org slash AML slash community, you'll receive an email when the registration page is posted and stay up to date on all of our future events. As a reminder for today's show, if you have joined us online and would like to be able be able to ask Dr. Blatchley a question during our Q&A period at the end, you'll need to call in via telephone to 515-602-9728 and press 1 on your keypad when you're ready to ask your question. Now on to today's show. Progress in understanding AML and developing therapies that treat this challenging blood cancer is occurring at an astounding pace. Up until recently, treatment options for AML remained largely unchanged for nearly the past five decades with cytarabine and anthracyclines or 7 and 3 therapy and the use of hypomethylating agents like azacitidine or decitabine for less intensive therapy. Implementation of large-scale genetic studies in the past decade have unraveled the genetic landscape and molecular understanding of AML, leading to the approval of several new drugs for targeted therapy by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. These drug approvals have significantly widened the treatment options for patients with AML and opened the doors to many new clinical trials looking at their use in various combinations and settings. In today's radio show, Dr. James Blatchley, an AML expert from the James Comprehensive Cancer Center at Ohio State University, will review the use of many of these newer treatments and discuss their use in clinics and hospitals today. He will also share an overview of the promising agents currently under development, along with information on key clinical trials taking place that will further shape the future of AML treatment. Dr. Blatchley will simplify the significant work being performed by researchers all of the world who have a common goal of curing all patients with AML. We are so pleased to have you here with us on the show today, Dr. Blatchley. Before we get started, let me provide an introduction for you. 
Dr. James Blatchley completed his medical degree and internal medicine residency at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences in Little Rock, Arkansas. He completed his fellowship in hematology and medical oncology at the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center in Columbus, Ohio. Dr. Blatchley is now an assistant professor of biomedical informatics and internal medicine at Ohio State University. He primarily sees patients with AML and hairy cell leukemia within the hematology and transplantation clinic at the Ohio State University James Comprehensive Cancer Center. His current research conducted within the Blatchley Lab focuses on understanding the role genetics and genomics play in the development, progression, and treatment of acute myeloid leukemia and chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and returning that information back to the clinic, informing the design of future clinical trials to improve patient care. He is currently an investigator on several AML-specific clinical trials. Thank you, Dr. Blatchley, for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me to visit, Katie. We're so happy to have you, um, and I'd like to go ahead and get started and jump into our discussion. Um, Great. I'd like, to I'd like to start by having you more broadly discuss the evolution of AML treatment over the recent years. Can you tell us about the progress that has taken place in research and drug development that has gotten us to where we are today? Sure, that's one of my favorite things to talk about. Uh, before I get started, <laughs> I want to say um, briefly that I have done consulting for companies that are involved in AML drug development um, and that I will discuss the use of off-label uh, medications today. So with that, um, this has been a really exciting story. It has a fascinating history in, in particular because we have 30 or 40 years where it was like a desert with um, no water in sight. We had uh, 7 and 3, which many of your listeners have heard of as a conventional chemotherapy regimen for AML developed in 1973. And then bone marrow transplant really became established as a consolidative and potentially curative mechanism at the Hutch in Seattle in about 1977. But then in the rest of the 70s, throughout the 1980s and all of the 1990s, there was uh, absolutely nothing developed for AML. It's not to say that there weren't really important clinical trials going on. And a lot of fundamental and translational research was happening, but we just couldn't make it work. Uh, nothing could really beat the standard of care. And uh, in the year 2000, a drug called gemtuzumab was approved. And so we had that drug, which is an um, immunotoxin conjugate, essentially, um, a, a drug bound to a monoclonal antibody, um, for 10 years. And it was actually withdrawn from the market in 2010. So ignoring um, gemtuzumab, we had really no new AML drug approvals uh, or standards of care established uh, between the late seven, uh, sorry, the mid-70s and the late 20-teens. And so in 2017, something really, really exciting in our field happened, which was uh, the approval of a number of drugs. And it just, sort of, once it hit, they just sort of all started hitting. Uh, we had mitostorin, which is a FLT3 inhibitor. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. It was approved in April of that year. And then in August, we see uh, quickly right after that, a drug called enosidinib, which is an IDH2 inhibitor. 
And also in August, two days later, we have a liposomal formulation of donorubicin and cytarabine, which is called CPX351. It's marketed as Vixios. And then in September, um, just a few weeks later, uh, gemtuzumab, the drug I mentioned that was approved in 2000 and yanked from the market 10 years later, was reapproved on the basis of new data that shows how to better use it with uh, less toxicity. And then an IDH1 inhibitor called ivocidinib is approved uh, in July of the following year in 2018. And then in November of 2018, we, we see two different drugs approved, venetoclax and glasdegib, right next to each other. A week later in 2018, giltaritinib, another FLT3 inhibitor, is approved uh, at the end of November. And then uh, finally in 2019, ivocidinib got another indication in the frontline setting. So in 2017 and 2018, there was just this flurry of activity. And I view that really as the payoff for all those decades of research. People really were working hard. Um, and it's like we started to hit the exponential part of the curve. So I mean, that's really a short summary of, of the landscape of AML treatment. We started with chemotherapy. We worked hard to find something else. We had a hard time establishing a better uh, standard of care. And I'm leaving out a lot of things. For example, in Europe, um, they may do double inductions. There are certain centers in the United States that have modified the basic seven and three, but we had decades and decades where all we have is intensive chemotherapy, and then all of a sudden now we have um, a plethora of choices for targeted therapy, and we can talk about what targeted therapy means a little bit later. Yeah, that's that's a great overview. I've seen timelines put together um, basically depicting what you explained and it's just it's amazing to see the explosion since 2017 um very good i think it's always great to talk about the progress and the excitement in that um but despite the progress i think you and i and probably everyone listening can agree that there's still a lot more work that needs to be done um can you talk about the major gaps in AML treatment and drug development that still need to be filled and maybe highlight the groups of people with AML who especially need more research and better treatment options? Sure, that's a really great question. And to, to really understand that question and the answer, we need to take a step back and understand AML as a description of a collection of diseases. Now, um, we define AML as 20% or more um, myeloid blasts in the bone marrow or peripheral blood, and then there's, there's a bunch of other footnotes to that. But really, there is a variety of genetic causes, and they lead generally to similar, um, we say phenotype, which means what your disease or condition looks like. But we could instead think of AML as a collection of a dozen or more genetically distinct diseases. And so a lot of the drugs that I rattled off that had been approved in 2017 and 2018 are what we call targeted therapies, meaning, for example, if a patient has a mutation in a gene called IDH2, they may be able to take an IDH2 inhibitor. If a patient has um, a genetic alteration in a gene called FLT3, FLT3, then they may be able to take a FLT3 inhibitor alone or in combination with other uh, chemotherapy or, or other uh, hypomethylating agent, for instance. And that's called targeted therapy, right? But what about those uh, genetic groups 
of patients who don't have a targeted therapy available for them yet. Well, there are other drugs like venetoclax, which targets a protein called BCL2, but it, it does not target a mutated BCL2. That's something that could be used broadly in somebody who does not have um, a specific inhibitor for their disease. But in a genetic sense, there are many, many, many groups of patients who have one or a combination of mutations for which there's no specific or pathway relevant inhibitor. And that's something that's being actively worked on. Um, as an example, uh, patients with an MLL or KMT2A is what we call it now, but an MLL rearranged leukemia may benefit from a menin inhibitor. And there's a number of companies with menin inhibitors in clinical trials. And so in a way, one way we're approaching drug development for AML is to slice the pie into a whole bunch of different pieces and go after them individually. And that could potentially be really successful. We see high response rates to specific targeted therapies. In other cases, we don't. Maybe we need a combination of targeted therapies. So that's, uh, I guess that's a group or many groups of patients with AML that need more research and better treatment options. We can talk about specific groups maybe a little bit later. But then there's other factors like uh, demographic or socioeconomic factors. Our group uh, had a presentation at the American Society of Hematology meeting last year that showed that under the age of 60, black Americans have worse outcomes compared to Caucasian Americans and that self-identification of race might be one of the single most important prognostic factors. Really importantly, this was even in so-called good risk or favorable risk AML. So there's a lot of ways to slice that question. We could talk about genetic groups. We could talk about socioeconomic or uh, other factors. And, you know, I think as it relates to your listeners today, we may want to discuss individual genetic groups um, now or, or when we get to questions later. Yeah, sure. So we might as well go ahead and talk about targeted therapies, and you've listed some of the FDA-approved ones um, and who they may benefit. Um, can you talk about some of the additional ones that are being studied and in development now and which subsets of, of people those may be beneficial for? Sure. Well, um, first of all, I think it's important to note that even though we already have FDA-approved drugs for um, certain mutational statuses or categories, doesn't mean that we can't further develop better drugs. And I'll give the example of FLT3 inhibitors. The very first targeted therapy approved for AML and the first drug in a very, very long time in 2017 was mitostorin, and that's a FLT3 inhibitor it was approved in the frontline setting in combination with chemotherapy. Um, Mitostorin is a great drug, and it, um, you know, I think is important standard of care in terms of FDA-approved therapies for frontline AML. But meanwhile, uh, there's been a lot of development in second-generation FLT3 inhibitors, and uh, all that work has paid off because the next year, in 2018, another drug called gilteritinib was approved, and it was approved in the relapse refractory setting, but there's a number of centers uh, and clinical trials that use gilteritinib uh, in the frontline setting instead of in the relapse refractory setting because it's a more potent and selective inhibitor. There are yet other FLT3 inhibitors um, in trials currently. 
Likewise, there are FDA-approved IDH1 and IDH2 inhibitors, uh, ivocidinib and enosidinib, respectively, but that doesn't mean that there's not more room for improvement, and in fact, there are uh, IDH1 and IDH2 inhibitors and, and um, combination IDH1 and IDH2 inhibitors uh, under development. So other groups of patients that uh, have sort of active drug development and, or that uh, we're looking to improve the status of things are uh, NPM1-mutated patients. NPM1-mutated patients may benefit from uh, inhibition of the SYK, S-Y-K pathway. They may also benefit from menin inhibition. I mentioned menin inhibitors as uh, an important potential strategy in patients with MLL rearranged AML. And it's really interesting because NPM1 mutated patients are uh, traditionally, and there's a couple of footnotes here again, considered favorable risk. An NPM1 mutated patient may not be transplanted in their first complete remission because there's a likelihood that some of these patients could be cured with chemotherapy alone. So that's a good risk patient. Uh, MLL, on the other hand, is typically considered a poor risk marker. So if you have a rearrangement of the MLL or KMT2A gene, that's very, very poor risk. And uh, not only if you achieved a CR would you be recommended to get a transplant, the probability of obtaining a CR is generally lower among these patients. And yet, because uh, these two groups can converge on the same pathway, if you will, or some of the same genetic programs are activated, might be a better way to think about it, they might both benefit from menin, M-E-N-I-N, menin inhibitors. And in fact, menin inhibitors are being studied in both of these patient populations. Um, there's a number of other populations where it could be very difficult to drug, for example, RUNX1 is a transcription factor that is uh, frequently mutated in AML. And transcription factors were historically thought to be undruggable. There's a lot of newer strategies looking at drugging transcription factors using, uh, for example, degrading compounds and other techniques and other diseases. But, but there's an example of a patient with porous disease that really needs um, some further development. TP53 is another example of a mutation that confers a really poor prognosis that needs really active development. And I think some of the most promising things for TP53 uh, mutated AML include uh, CD47 monoclonal antibodies, one of those, it's called megrolimab. Yeah, I definitely want to talk more about that when we get into our immunotherapy discussion and maybe a few more questions. Um, sure. I think we could talk about targeted therapy for an entire hour. It sounds like there's so much going on there, so many new developments, um, so many different things being looked at. Um, but I'd like to take maybe a step backward and talk a little bit about 7 and 3 chemotherapy, um, as it's been the mainstay of treatment for a very long time, as you've mentioned, for newly diagnosed patients who are deemed appropriate. Um, I'm wondering if you see the use of 7 and 3 in this setting changing anytime soon, or are there any new chemotherapy regimens being studied or in development to replace 7 and 3 or give patients another option at diagnosis? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I should state that 7 and 3 is the standard of care in the United States, but that practices vary worldwide. I think I've already alluded to the fact that um, in some places in Europe, particularly in Germany, it's uh, standard to do a double induction 
um, you know, something like seven and three, but given twice. So intensity may vary. And so we'll talk about conventional seven and three as a practice in the United States as a standard of care. And as a reminder to the listeners, uh, seven and three, you would think that seven plus three equals 10, but uh, seven plus three equals seven because of the way that these overlap. And, and what it refers to is that you get seven days of uh, one drug, which is uh, cytarabine or ERAC, and the first three days of which overlapping, you're also receiving an anthracycline, um, something like idorubicin or donorubicin. And that is the standard of care, and I, I do see that remaining the standard of care at least for a while, but there's some interesting uh, new data that's coming out, some data that has already come out and that I think has made a big impact on practices is the addition of gemtuzumab, which uh, the trade name is Mylotard, and you may also hear it called that, but the addition of gemtuzumab to 7 and 3 chemotherapy in specific subsets of patients, for example, good risk patients. So a number of studies have shown that the addition of gemtuzumab or Mylotard to 7 and 3 in the upfront setting provides even better outcomes for patients with good risk disease like core binding factor AML. And I haven't said what core binding factor AML is, but it's, um, it's a, a group of chromosomal translocations that predict that patients are more likely to be cured with chemotherapy alone. So these patients already had a high likelihood of being cured, but we can boost that further by adding gemtuzumab to 7 and 3. There's other data um, and some very nice studies, for example, from MD Anderson, showing that the addition of drugs of the class purine nucleoside analog, like uh, cladribine, to intensive induction with 7 and 3 or, or a 7 and 3-like regimen can further improve outcomes. There's been additional studies with other purine nucleoside analogs, but I think uh, cladribine uh, has some of the best data, and um, this has been done both in the frontline setting and the relapse refractory setting. But what we'll probably see is a modification to the 7 and 3 backbone as uh, as I mentioned, the addition of gemtuzumab in good risk patients or favorable risk patients, or the incorporation of other agents like cladribine to the backbone can further improve outcomes for, say, intermediate risk patients. Mm. So seven and three seems to be here to stay, but adding additional things to that therapy to further increase its effectiveness is the way the, the, the thought is going. For for the majority of patients, um, or at least for a lot of patients, I mentioned earlier that AML is a genetically defined disease, and as we learn how to divide things up, it may not be just the P53 patients who we would potentially exclude from upfront 7 and 3 chemotherapy. Maybe we'll learn which other patients have a propensity to DNA mismatch problems, and we would try them on some targeted therapy or some less intensive therapy up front. Interesting. So for patients that have achieved remission, what are your thoughts on maintenance therapy in order to reduce risk of relapse? Is this an approach that's currently being used? And if so, what drugs may be considered? Great question. Um, it is an approach that's being used, and it's been used for quite some time. So um, First of all, we have to consider whether somebody is appropriate for an allogeneic stem cell transplant or not. And 
Well, that's not necessarily considered a maintenance therapy. That's a, a considered a consolidative therapy. And I the, would draw the distinction for the listeners is consolidative therapy sort of improves the probability of a cure. And a maintenance therapy is designed to prolong a remission which may or may not involve a cure. So if somebody is appropriate for an allogeneic stem cell transplant, I think that would be the, the first thing to consider. If somebody is not eligible for an allogeneic stem cell transplant because they have really favorable risk disease, in general, outside of the context of a clinical trial, we're not recommending maintenance therapy. But for patients who may not qualify for a transplant for one reason or another, but who have uh, unfavorable risk or intermediate risk disease, I think it is reasonable to consider maintenance therapy. And we have for some years been doing um, azacitidine, which I don't think we've mentioned yet on this call, but azacitidine is a so-called hypomethylator or hypomethylating agent, HMA. And um, that has been shown in a number of studies, uh, especially from Europe, as an effective maintenance therapy in AML. Now we actually have um, a drug called Onureg is the trade name, and it's oral azacitidine tablets, um, which are available for AML. But whether or not that improves outcomes for patients with favorable risk disease, um, I think is, uh, is not well established. And in general, we recommend these in patients with um, less favorable risk disease who are not moving on to transplant. Is that kind of what you're looking for? Yeah, no, that was helpful. So I guess I'm wondering if hypomethylating agents or azacitidine, if that's kind of the mainstay when it comes to thinking about maintenance therapy or if there are other drugs being considered. It is. Now, in terms of other drugs being considered, um, absolutely. So I'll give you an example. Let's suppose that a patient had uh, AML and they had MDS before they had AML. It may be an MDS that progressed quickly and was not treated. It may be an MDS that had it for a really long time <clears throat> and they developed AML, or it may be an MDS that um, was unrecognized. We would call that an unrecognized antecedent MDS, and you could sort of work out after the fact that this AML probably came from an MDS on the basis of a genetic profile. In any event, um, let's suppose that a patient had AML with an IDH mutation and they get into a, a complete remission, and then you do a genetic study, um, DNA sequencing, on their remission bone marrow. And there's no evidence of residual AML, but there's a fair number of the cells that still have, let's say, an IDH2 mutation. In that case, it's, it's certainly not on label, but it would be reasonable and many experts would consider giving an IDH inhibitor as maintenance. This is also done in the context of a number of clinical trials. Um, we're also investigating drugs like IDH inhibitors and other targeted therapies um, after allogeneic transplant as a mechanism of maintenance therapy. So maintenance therapy conventionally um, and as FDA approved would be with a hypomethylating agent azacitidine. But depending on the patient's clinical context and their genetic context, you may consider specific targeted inhibitors as a maintenance therapy. Yeah, that's very helpful. That example is great. Um, are you able to speak to any advances that are be, being made in allogeneic stem cell transplant and 
maybe talking about improvements to the transplant itself or any advances in managing side effects or toxicities that come along with the transplant? Well, let me just say that I am not a uh, transplanter, and so I think what would be really nice is to have a future visit with an AML-specific transplanter. So bone marrow transplant physicians will often specialize in um, a specific type of malignancy. So there's bone marrow transplanters who specialize in uh, lymphoma, uh, some specialize in AML, some specialize in myelofibrosis, et cetera. And so I'm speaking from the perspective of an AML physician who sends my patients to my partners in the transplant department to be transplanted. But yes, there are a number of advances uh, being made. And some of the most exciting advances are in, um, I think, supportive care and alternative graft sources. And so when I say supportive care, I mean everything from uh, antibiotics to uh, graft-versus-host disease treatment. And when I say graft sources, and I mean um, the graft being the stem cells and where they come from, how they're manipulated, how can we uh, select the stem cell source, and how can we potentially manipulate the stem cell source, potentially in conjunction with a medication given to the recipient to help reduce the chances of graft-versus-host disease and increase the chances of graft-versus-leukemia disease. Um, but other than I can mention briefly some drugs that have recently been approved for GVHD, I would leave specific graft manipulations and the data regarding graft source to my transplant colleagues. That was really, really helpful what you led with about trying to find a um, transplant specialist who specializes in AML specifically. I, I think that's great for our listeners to hear. What about for our transplant and eligible patients? What's generally being offered to them now and what's being done to better serve this group of patients? Well, um, I'll say that unfortunately, um, AML is often a disease of older adults, and many of these patients, by virtue of age alone, although the uh, transplanter who's listening to this is probably cringing because, you know, we should not qualify for somebody on, uh, on the basis of age alone. Um, but usually what goes with age or what often goes with age is medical comorbidities or other conditions that you have, other health conditions, whether that is lung problems, heart problems, diabetes, et cetera. Um, and anyway, unfortunately, a lot of patients with AML, being older adults, may have conditions that uh, preclude them from being transplanted. Because of advances in donor selection and um, alternative graft sources, there are more and more AML patients who are able to be transplanted, but we're still left with a lot of patients who can't or won't or choose not to get a transplant. And for those patients, we've already talked about uh, maintenance therapy. So for a subset of patients, maintenance therapy with something like oral azacitidine could be appropriate. Alternatively, you could ask your AML physician if there's anything about their disease or their mutational profile that suggests that they should have some alternative off-label or clinical trial-based maintenance therapy. Um, and then uh, finally, of course, some of these patients who are not cured with an allogeneic stem cell transplant may relapse, and uh, so these patients may need, um, may need treatment for relapse refractory AML. Yeah. So let's move on to immunotherapy. And other than stem cell transplant, 
can you tell us what immunotherapy options we currently have for AML and what are some of the big ones right now in development? Well, um, I guess first we have to say what do we mean by immunotherapy? And you did say other than allogeneic stem cell transplant, which is great. So in terms of immunotherapy, I would think about these in terms of uh, stem cell transplant, engineered cell therapy, uh, something like a CAR-T, and uh, monoclonal antibodies and antibody drug conjugates. So um, in terms of uh, immunotherapies that fall under the engineered cell therapy, there's been a number of targets that have been investigated with CAR-T. And just for listeners who aren't familiar with CAR-T, uh, CAR-T stands for chimeric antigen receptor T-cell. And uh, engineered means that we're actually taking T-cells, which are another important part of the immune system and a cell that's generally unaffected in AML because it is of a different lineage in the bone marrow. We take the T-cells and we perform a genetic manipulation on them to cause them to express a gene that they never expressed before, and they express a surface receptor that will target the AML cells. Or um, in the case of ALL or diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, we actually already have FDA-approved CAR T-cells. But this is a really exciting area of investigation in uh, both solid tumor and hematologic oncology, where we're taking cells uh, from the patient themselves. Uh, sometimes they're manipulated in, in some other ways uh, ahead of time, but we take these T-cells, and a T-cell is an important part of the immune system that uh, can recognize um, pathogens or you know diseases and attack them, and we sort of reprogram them to home in on the cancer cells. And so in AML, there's a number of targets uh, that are being explored, and these include uh, things like CD123, which is a protein on the surface of the AML cells. CLL1 is another protein on the surface of some AML cells. Um, CD33 is a target on some AML cells. And so, again, just like we have to uh, sort of subdivide all the genetic types of AML, we're going to have to choose immune therapy based on the um, – we say immunophenotype, which means which proteins are expressed on the surface of the AML. Um, there's also monoclonal antibodies, and I've mentioned already once megrolimab, which is a drug targeting a protein on the surface of the AML cells called CD47. And if I back up a second and define what is a monoclonal antibody, uh, in the same way that our body's immune system produces antibodies targeting bacteria and viruses and so forth, um, we can take the very same genes and express them in an artificial system and manufacture large quantities of antibodies targeting a specific protein. And so this is different than the engineered T cell because there's no living cell involved. It's simply a protein. And, um, you know, that's been an incredibly successful strategy in cancer generally. So those, those are all really exciting areas. I think CAR T cells for AML are going to be difficult but not impossible. And uh, megrolimab as a uh, monoclonal antibody is exceptionally promising. I listened to a very brief talk by Dr. Robos, an AML specialist in New York last week, and she was talking about CAR-T in AML, and she was saying that the difficulty here is that we haven't found good 
targets in AML because they're not necessarily always specific to AML cells. Did I gather that correctly? Is that why it's been difficult? Yeah, absolutely. One of the difficult things about this strategy in AML is that the AML blasts may express many of the same proteins which are expressed on a healthy blood stem cell or hematopoietic stem cell or healthy mature blood cells like neutrophils or monocytes. So the, the cells that we want to preserve, whether that's the healthy stem cell, which may be few in number and, and trying fighting hard to recover and fight back against the malignant clone, or their byproducts, which is the healthy normal neutrophils, uh, monocytes, et cetera, they have the same proteins on their surface as, as the AML blasts do. And so how do we find a target that's specific to the malignant blast or ideally the malignant AML stem cell and target that without uh, depleting everything else. One strategy is to be a little bit less sophisticated and just uh, have a bone marrow transplant ready to go after targeting AML stem cells. But, but really the holy grail would be to find a protein or a combination of proteins perhaps that uniquely identifies the AML stem cell or the AML blast or both. And I'm glad you talked about megrolimab. I, I wanted you to talk specifically about this one because the past two shows I've done with Dr. Manis and Dr. Reagan, they've both brought up their excitement about this therapy. And I'm wondering if you could tell us, like, where along the timeline are we with this? Like, is this something that could be available soon or is it more early on in development? Um, I would put it in between those two, and I'll also say that I don't have any specific insight or information regarding megrolimab's specific path uh, to regulatory approval, but I am very optimistic that we will see additional drug approvals um, in 2022 and 2023. Um, megrolimab has already demonstrated in early phase studies, like phase 1b studies, remarkable efficacy in patients, um, including with TP53 mutated disease. And so that's a disease subtype I alluded to earlier that may not be suitable for upfront chemotherapy. And, and many AML specialists may choose not to treat TP53 mutated AML patients with 7 and 3 with intensive chemotherapy. The reason being that TP53 being a um, master regulator of cell death, it sort of responds to signals that DNA has been damaged, and if DNA has been damaged, can cause the cells to commit suicide. If that's dysfunctional, then the cells can accumulate more and more genetic damage without dying and potentially become more and more aggressive. So we're looking for non-chemotherapy strategies in TP53 mutated AML. Uh, Megrolimab has been fascinating because in some of the early studies, um, patients with TP53 mutation AML, which are traditionally considered difficult to treat, over 70% of them might achieve any response, and about half of them could get a complete response. That's really remarkable. And so this is a drug that, across the board, we're very excited about because it doesn't have uh, utilities only in TP53 mutated AML, but in many settings. And in addition, it has utility in this setting that we consider very high risk and hard to treat. Wow. 
No wonder I have each doctor speaking on it. It's very, very interesting and exciting to hear I, that. I should also add there's other drugs targeting the same protein, CD47, in development. And so I think that as a field generally, um, CD47 targeting therapy is really promising. And just like I mentioned, um, the development of FLT3 inhibitors continued along. Um, Megrolimab is the first one out of the gate, but there may be side effects with Megrolimab that we could improve with second-generation CD47 inhibitors. Yeah, very interesting. So more broadly, can you talk about what work is being done specifically in relapse refractory disease? Yeah, so that's a really tough area because relapse refractory AML is often a disease that has an accumulation of uh, genetic damage. And I talked about TP53, but the chemotherapy that we give for AML up front in general is typically uh, much more intense than chemotherapy given in other diseases. And most of the listeners know that because they or a loved one might have even been told that you're going to be hospitalized from four to six weeks to uh, get chemotherapy and recover from it. That's just such a high treatment intensity compared to chemotherapy that we give for other diseases like colon cancer or breast cancer that there's really a high potential for uh, ancillary genetic damage. And when you've had enough chemotherapy, we, um, it's, it's my belief that this is just a very, very challenging area to develop new drugs in. So um, one of the things that I think is important to explore in uh, relapse refractory AML is new drugs limiting the number of prior lines of chemotherapy that somebody has had. And w without meaning to exclude uh, patients who may have had a lot of chemotherapy, um, I'm worried that in a big picture sense, we could miss out on signals from potentially active drugs if they are tried only in a clinical trial context where patients who have had many, many rounds and types of traditional cytotoxic chemotherapy are being enrolled. Um, otherwise, you know, I think there's, a num there's too many promising agents to mention specifically, but if there's, I think, specific questions that you or the listeners have, I'd be delighted to go over them. Sure, yeah. So I want to switch gears just a little bit and maybe talk about studies or work being done outside of just drug development, maybe looking at um, AML survivors and managing long-term side effects or even things to improve health um, such as nutrition, physical activity, um, quality of life. Are you aware of any initiatives being done in this area? Um, I am. And this, I will say, again, is not my area of expertise, but there are doctors who specialize specifically in AML-related quality of life. Um, Tom LeBlanc is a physician at Duke University who is an AML specialist but also a palliative care specialist, and um, I think would be somebody great to visit with about this topic, but there's a lot of um, data and development of new data regarding um, patient-reported quality of life metrics, and so most uh, large clinical trials at this time, not just in AML, but in cancer generally, are starting to incorporate 
patient-reported quality of life indicators within the studies themselves. And so this is a really rich area that is only going to get better. Um, I mentioned that some patients or their loved ones, you know, some listeners or their loved ones may have been told, oh, you're going to be hospitalized for four to six weeks. A lot of times that comes out of the blue, and some recent research has shown that um, survivors of AML carry a diagnosis or, or should be given a diagnosis, really, of post-traumatic stress disorder. And when we really look at it through an objective lens, that's terribly traumatic, stressful, disruptive. You're living your life, and an AML is a disease where you might feel perfectly fine one week, and the next week you're being told that you need to be hospitalized for a month or longer and that if you don't take treatment, that you could die. And so there's um, investigation going looking into survivors and, and post-traumatic stress they may have and also ways to reduce that stress at the time that the diagnosis is made. So it's not my area, um, and I can't tell you about specific studies, but I am excited that there are people working on that for our patients. Yeah, I agree. I think it's super important to to look at the things outside of medication that can make their lives better. I think that's really important. I'd love to explore that further on future shows. Um, for the sake of time, let's move on. I want to get in just a few more questions before we open it up for caller questions. But can you talk about some of the top clinical trials that are on your radar right now um, that you feel are going to be the most impactful for the future of AML treatment and maybe talk about what we might see in 2022. Sure. Um, one of the things we haven't talked about on the show just because it didn't come up was that, um, or maybe I should have said it back when we were talking about seven and three and the standard of care. I missed the opportunity to point out that for older adults, and I'm going to say um, 60 or 65 is when you start to think of somebody as older, and that seems younger and younger to me every year. But for older adults, um, 7 and 3 or intensive chemotherapy generally may not be the best approach. And instead, uh, the standard of care now, although it's FDA approved in an older age group, I would say that anybody 65 and up should really strongly be considered for a combination of venetoclax, which is a targeted therapy I mentioned earlier, and azacitidine, which I mentioned earlier, but I didn't mention them together. And so some of the most promising stuff that is being looked at right now is using venetoclax and azacitidine as a backbone. So instead of 7 and 3 as a backbone, looking at uh, venetoclax and azacitidine or venaza as a backbone with a number of other different experimental agents. And in this way, you could think of it as a chemotherapy-free uh, uh, AML treatment regimen, and azacitidine is, I guess, in theory, a chemotherapy, but we don't think of it in the same way. So combinations um, that don't include 7 and 3, so non-chemotherapy combinations are really exciting and things we're looking for. We're also looking um, at whether uh, venetoclax could be used in a maintenance setting. Um, I'm excited about megrolimab, which we've already discussed. I'm excited about there's two different um, menin inhibitors, and these are for patients with MLL or KMT2A rearranged AML or NPM1 mutated AML. Um, there are activators of, of mutant or inactivated TP53 being studied. There are um, other protein inhibitors like BCLXL being studied and uh, MCL1 inhibitors. Um, 
there's just a whole bunch of things. I think I've already told you the things I'm most excited about. I do think in 2022, we'll start to see some additional drug approvals, uh, maybe later in the year. Um, and I, I expect to see that continue on through 2023. But um, there's so much exciting stuff going on. I like I hate to call out things specifically and, and leave somebody out, but there's a lot of a lot of upfront and relapse refractory studies going on in AML, both for younger patients who might tolerate intensive chemo and older patients who would uh, require a less intensive regimen uh, like venetoclaxase or cytidine. Yes, that's great to hear. We've talked about so many exciting cutting-edge trials today that really provide a lot of hope for AML patients. Um, I want to give our listeners some practical information about what it could be like for them if they do decide to join a clinical trial. Can you take us through what joining a trial looks like at your facility? Sure. And I think I would say that this is the same at at any tertiary care facility. And there's even uh, large uh, private practices that have really robust clinical trial portfolios. So uh, typically, you would meet with your AML physician or your oncologist, learn more, make sure that you really understand your diagnosis and where you are in your journey, that maybe this is your very first interaction, you're, say, previously untreated. You may be very experienced and you've had a number of prior lines of therapy and you're talking about next steps, but you have to sort of clearly, you and your physician talk about where you are, and that will influence the clinical trials that are available to you because the trials that are available for patients who have previously never had anything for AML, so previously untreated, is typically totally different than the menu of clinical trials available for somebody who has what we call relapse refractory disease, or I'll I'll pitch a third setting, maintenance studies, which is an active area of inquiry. So you and your doctor will understand where you are, and you'll talk about one or more clinical trial options. You may, knowing some more information about your own genetics, you may ask some questions about, is there any information known about how this agent might interact with my XYZ mutation, or the fact that I've already had this, that, and the other chemotherapy, any data that you know about or that we should know about. And then when you you and your physician sort of decide on a best approach, you will meet with a clinical trial coordinator. The clinical trial coordinator will provide some additional information, the nitty-gritty kind of stuff like uh, whether there'll be travel involved, how often will you have to travel, will there be any overnights in the hospital. Some treatments are given initially in the first cycle in the hospital. Some immune therapies, um, patients might be prone to an immune reaction or an allergic reaction, and we will monitor them in the hospital. Once everything is working really well, you can get treatments in the clinic. Um, the clinical trial coordinator will go over all sorts of stuff like that. Is there reimbursement for a hotel? Um, how many times do I have to come in the first month compared to subsequent months, that sort of thing. And you'll get an informed consent document. It's really important to read this really carefully. And if you have any questions at all, ask them um, or ask them more than once and don't feel bad about it. The clinical trial coordinator's job and your physician's job is to make sure that you really understand the study and that it's something that you want to participate in. So after you read and understand and sign the informed consent document, then there will typically be some screening procedures. So to screen somebody for a clinical trial is to be super sure that you're eligible because trials, of course, have a list of um, eligibility and ineligibility criteria, so uh, bullet points as to who can participate and who definitely can't participate. That may be something as routine as a pregnancy test. 
um, to make somebody ineligible if they're currently pregnant, or it may be uh, something as complicated as a sophisticated genetic study that has to be done on the bone marrow. So the informed consent document will go over and tell you what all the screening procedures are. You'll, um, depending on your center, get all that screening done on the same day that you meet with the trial coordinator. Um, most AML studies will involve a bone marrow biopsy. You'll have some additional blood work done. There's almost no imaging done in AML. Once the results of all those screening studies are back, you're confirmed eligible. Depending on the tempo of your disease, you could uh, then begin participating in the clinical trial within a few days to a couple of weeks. It's a great overview and very, very helpful. How would a patient navigate a trial that's not necessarily at their AML doctor's facility? One, how would they, how would they know or find these trials and, and what steps could they take to, to get enrolled? Yeah, first thing to do is to ask your physician because they may have a network of people that they could reach out to um, at various other centers to see what trials are available. And so suppose that somebody is treated at a community oncologist here in Ohio um, two hours west of here, they might call me and they might call Indianapolis and they might call Cincinnati um, to see what trials we have at our centers that would work for their specific patient. If the patient themselves needs to go looking for things, clinicaltrials.gov is the most comprehensive resource. It can be a little bit difficult to navigate. It's gotten a lot better lately, but you'll type in AML and then you'll look for other things you know about your disease and yourself to see what you could be eligible for. And there's a list of sites in the U.S. and, and internationally that any particular study is offered at on clinicaltrials.gov. HealthTree, of course, is working on a, a clinical trials matcher for patients. And then there's other AML-focused uh, sites like AML Hub that may or may not have a clinical trial matcher, but you could learn more about what trials are out there. You could then go search them on clinicaltrials.gov to see where they are. Yeah, and just to to mention our clinical trial finder really briefly, um, you can find that on our website at healthtree.org slash AML slash community slash clinical trials. This is the first iteration of our clinical trial finder to help you filter yourself for trials that might be relevant to you. Um, our next iteration coming hopefully very soon is that it will do the matching for you based on some health information that you'll enter. Um, so stay tuned for that, but, but it's definitely on our website right now for you to check out and, and utilize with, with our advanced filters feature. Um, so I'd like to open it up now for caller questions. Uh, if you have any questions about anything Dr. Blatchley discussed today, um, you can call into 515-602-9728. And once you're on the call and ready to ask your question, press 1 on your keypad. Um, I see here a caller ending in 1034. I'll unmute you and let you ask your question now. Hi, Dr. Blatchley. Thanks so much for taking time today to be on the program. Um, I just had a question about clinical trials since we've talked so much about it. Is there any time point where I can't join a clinical trial where it's like I've waited too long or, or the, that type uh, of great, question? Great question. The only time that I could think of, practically speaking, that a, a patient could not join a clinical trial is when they're currently being treated with something else. That's not to say that you couldn't discontinue treatment and then join the clinical trial, um, but patients who are currently being treated for uh, AML or any other cancer 
are excluded from uh, therapeutic clinical trials. There's other types of clinical trials that may be dietary or lifestyle or whatever that would not exclude you. But in terms of number of lines of therapy, no. I talked about the importance um, of the strategy of drug development, sort of limiting the number of lines of therapy, but um, certainly most of relapse refractory studies we have open don't limit the number of lines of prior therapy in that way. And so on active treatment is the only thing I could think of to answer. Are there other um, health issues that I might have that would, like, prevent me from joining a trial? There are um, there's really a lot of standard laboratory criteria that have to be met to participate in a clinical trial, and typically these are things like adequate organ function, whether you're talking about kidneys or liver, mm-hmm. and then depending on the specific drug or agent that's being studied, there may be additional uh, hurdles to clear. This is really tough because many patients with AML already have organ problems, maybe from their disease or maybe from treatment for their disease. And it's really difficult to tell somebody that you can't participate because uh, you don't meet this criteria. What I would say is keep looking, Um, continue Mm -hmm. searching because there's a broad variety in trial context and trial criteria. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, I have another question here from caller ending in 0579. I'll unmute you now. Hi, yes, um, I also have a question about clinical trials. Um, So there is one that I was very interested in for my mom, who is now um, in a relapsed refractory state of her AML. And um, it's called the Sierra trial. It uses IOMAB-B. Um, so it seems like it just closed um, a few weeks ago, but because of the timing, we didn't know that she wasn't responding to traditional chemotherapy until after it had closed. And I've emailed the doctors at all of the centers across the country, gotten in contact with the pharmaceutical company, Actinam, and there's no possible way to get her in. So my frustration is, you know, we're talking about, the future of care and, you know, how to help people survive and, you know, if this is a tangible, you know, investigational drug that is working for people, um, it works in people who have um, up to 30% blast um, and they've still gotten to transplant on this. So, um, you know, if she qualifies for it, um, it just... It's really mind-boggling to me that yeah. because I was three weeks late on something, that that could be, you know, a really life-changing time frame. That, that is so frustrating. And the period between the closure of what we know as an active drug and the time that it gets FDA approved is one of the most frustrating for patients and their doctors because the uh, data that shows that some agent or drug is active is already out there but it has to undergo all of these regulatory checks before it can be approved. So I have to say I sympathize with you and your mother because it's a really tough position to be in. The only thing uh, and potential way around this requires the cooperation of the pharmaceutical company, which you've already reached out to, and a uh, physician who's experienced in either using the agent or agents like it and that's something called a single patient, uh, single patient 
IND application. And those are really pretty uncommonly done, especially after uh, data has been gathered in a phase three study like Sierra. And I didn't mention Sierra. I think of that more of as a transplant study, but I think that I'm really happy you brought it up because it's really important to our AML patients. Um, a single patient IND is uh, essentially regulatory paperwork that conducts a clinical trial of one. Um, the problem is you have to have the pharmaceutical company agree to uh, supply the agent and you have to have a physician. In the case of uh, IOMAB-B, that involves also radiation control officers and it becomes incredibly complex. Um, but, but a single patient IND is sometimes the only way to get access to agents that have already gone through a, a phase three study that appears successful or, or say phase two is successful and they did phase three, but is not yet FDA approved. This is one of the things that I'm looking forward to very much um, being approved, although I don't think that the final data will be available until the middle of next year, unfortunately. Okay, I see one more question, um, which we're really short on time, but I'll, I'm going to unmute 5272. Um, yes, I, uh, you mentioned earlier about a PTSD studies, um, because it is ex extremely traumatic, um, going into the hospital. Uh, me personally, I thought I was having blood pressure issues, um, and the VA rushed me to the ER because they thought I had a stroke. And then I found out, no, I had some kind of blood cancer. Um, a week later, was officially diagnosed with AML the same day that the country shut down for the pandemic. Hmm. Um, it was the, the, are those PTSD studies already happening? And if so, uh, how can I get signed up? I don't know the answer to that, but what I'll do is I will find out and get in touch with Katie, and we'll see what information we can get on the website. I just want to say that I'm I'm so sorry for that, and I think uh, as physicians we didn't really understand uh, until more recently just how traumatic that could be. And I really appreciate you sharing your story. It uh yeah yeah because the um the day I was officially diagnosed was also the day that um, my nurses actually had to fight for me to be able to keep. Uh, a caregiver at the hospital with me because they were kicking um, everybody that wasn't patients out of the hospital. Um, I've, I went into remission a month later, um, and I'm actually, uh, May 28th, I got a stem cell transplant, so I'm 144 days post-transplant. I'm doing great, uh, other than a little emotional from time to time, but uh, I'm a mechanic, and I'm actually going back to work this week. That's great. That is, that is great. I've jotted your number down, and I'll talk with Dr. Blatchley, and we'll, um, the Health Tree Foundation will give you a call. We'll be in touch with you soon, okay? Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Okay, so that's all the time we have for caller questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Blatchley, for joining us today. We're just so grateful for your generosity with your time and you sharing your incredible expertise with us. It's just unbelievable. Um, we we uh, still have more progress that needs to be made. 
when it comes to improving treatment outcomes for AML, but today you've given us so much hope that there's just so many amazing doctors and researchers out there like yourself who really do have the AML patient's best interest in mind and are taking big steps forward towards improving the lives of every person with AML. We really do wish you all the best in your clinical practice and your research endeavors. Thank you, Katie, for inviting me. One of my favorite things is to visit with uh, patients, and I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to chat today. We will continue working because there is so much progress still that needs to be made in this terrible disease. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Health Tree Radio for AML. Join us next time to learn more about what's happening in AML research and what it means for you.